Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. My name is Rob McLeod. I'm joined by the Silver Fox, Brendan O'Leary. How are you today, Brendan? Made it. Finally. First time in my life somebody's called me that. You, you do look like an attractive Tom York. Well, thank you very much. Had his talent, money, and smell. Today on the show, we will be looking at the mainstream approach to assessment and grading, also known as scoring. Previously, in our last episode, we looked at feedback and marking work in the mainstream school, but today looking at the actual assessment structures and the approaches to grading. So we're going to get into some topics here like standardized testing, which emerges as a focus in mainstream schools, uh, actually expanding the definition of what's considered an assessment, as well as looking into how a mainstream school approaches making a valid assessment that actually measures what it claims it is measuring. So if you are new to our program, we're going to talk about these three types of schools, traditional, mainstream, and progressive. And two suggestions for you, if you're brand new to us, it would be wise to skip ahead to the last five minutes of this episode, where we will do our three types of school model in a nutshell for you, if you're brand new to it. Or you could go back for a longer listen to our 50th episode, where we basically spend an hour going into detail about what these three types of schools are. If you're still with us, we trust that you have some semblance in your mind of what this traditional mainstream and progressive approach means. Brennan, maybe you could set the table by uh, taking a peek through the traditional approach to school, look through its eyes and talk about what assessment and grading looks like. Yeah, so way, way back, maybe 60 episodes ago, we talked about how tests happen in traditional school. And, and the notion of assessment essentially translates as tests if you go back into traditional forms of schooling. And while uh, the mainstream still uses tests, it's only one form of assessment. But if you go back into a traditional uh, kind of educational paradigm, you, you'll basically see periodic tests, often internal inside the school to kind of rank students to see who comes top of the class and to more or less check if you've done your duty of learning all of the things that your master, your teacher has taught you. And it's less arguably about measuring growth or even achievement. It's more about checking that you've got what you're supposed to have and maybe seeing where you are in the kind of um, ranking of the class. And then if we switch over to the mainstream approach to this, we get into this world of standardized tests. And I'm sure we could do an entire season on standardized tests alone for all of the complications, pros and cons that they bring to the educational world. But it really is this mainstream approach to school that brings standardized testing to the forefront. We try to stay neutral, not get into any pros or cons about standardized tests and just talk about what it is. What makes a standardized test a standardized test is that it is transparent about how it's being marked. It is standardized around criteria that um, like the entire test itself will be criteria based. Where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from very specific often curriculum objectives that are transparent and open for everyone to see what they are. Typically, these will be marked by multiple assessors 
So rarely will it be put in the hands of one person to assess. Of course, if there are some parts that can be done by a Scantron or can be marked electronically for you know, short or multiple choice answers, that will be done. But anything that involves you know, the writing of a text or some kind of analysis, that'll be marked by multiple people. So it's not just one person's opinion on things. In fact, a lot of this won't be marked internally within a school. Typically, standardized tests are sent externally somewhere to be marked. And the idea of this is that it's in service of being fair and being objective. So whether you, you know, if you're in Canada, whether you write it in downtown Toronto or the most northern fly-in remote community, in theory, your test will be marked exactly the same regardless of the location you've been in. This approach to testing is also not just done you know, for the sake of doing it itself, it's also used as an entry point typically into the next step of school. So it's sort of a consolidation of everything you've done in your current step of school and is now being used as kind of the gateway that will inform what options are open to you or what options are not as you shift from high school into college or university, for example. I'm kind of going on a rant with a whole lot that's packed in here, Brendan. I haven't even addressed typically that, you know, as we're just leading up to now, these are typically very high stakes and infrequent and just kind of one-offs. Often there will only be one of these standardized tests that you'll take one day, which will determine a huge degree of what doors are open or not to you. Um, maybe you can go into a little bit about the measuring merit and why we're doing all of this standardized testing. Yes, as you said, these are kind of one-off. They're almost like the Olympic race. You get one shot. Of course, you can retake, but they're high stakes, and often schools are ranked by the scores of the students. And you may have studied for several years to take this one, this one test. The attempt here is to measure your actual achievement, although it gets into some woolly areas because the amount of achievement you've made, the amount of progress you've made is actually less important. In a mainstream school, we talk a lot about how that distance that you've made is very important. But standardized test is basically saying, which level have you achieved here? And so you'll get that grade. And then that grade is used as a little bit of a shorthand, like you say, Rob, to get you into the next school or college or to get you that job interview, because it's very highly uh, connected to the kind of globalized world of work. And it uh, segues in very nicely in many ways, but it also limits in many ways. And we'll get to those pros and cons in a little while. But in theory, it, it measures where you're at and it kind of celebrates your progress. It lets you see that you've made this step, you've made this milestone. And that's why you have kind of awards bodies that are outside of the school. They're, they're essentially saying that we're norm referencing this against the entire country or even the entire world. And we're going to say this is kind of, a standardized level that you have made. You know, we, as, a, as a teacher, you, you get your, uh, your bachelor's or you get your teaching certificate. And that's essentially saying you've achieved this level and you can take that to many other countries around the world and they'll, they'll, they'll recognize that as an equivalent. Um, this is so far in advance of where the world was 100, 200 years ago. Although, of course, there were degrees and things that in the top universities, but the, the, the amount of these qualifications that exist and the, what you can use, um, what you can do with them 
is still continuing to grow. We're, we're, you know, we have lots of conversations about more and more uh, accreditation bodies being available, more and more ways to get these qualifications, shorter courses, professional development courses. Um, and that's all come about because of that standardization system. One of the things that we often say about the mainstream approach is this push towards effectiveness and efficiency. Really, as far as efficiency goes, the idea that in one day, everyone across the country of a certain age takes this test, it gets assessed, and some sort of SAT score or whatever it is, some final output comes from this that can be used to rank every single 18-year-old in the country to decide what next step of school is open for them. As far as efficiency goes, it doesn't get much more efficient than that. Then the question becomes, okay, that's super efficient. How effective is this? And then typically this is where very you know, many valid critiques of the approach to standardized testing will get in. But I digress. That's not where we're going with this today. Well, let me let me throw in one little thing before we go on because my son's currently taking three different courses, high school equivalency. They're like A-level style courses because it's an English system with three completely different awards bodies. He's doing them from home. So he has a different tutor in each of these different courses, totally unconnected. But at the end of them, he'll come out with this, the equivalent of that I did when I went to one college and had the same four or five teachers and took those exams on that same day. But he's taken a completely different route, but will end up, you know, fingers crossed with similar kind of uh, results, which is another benefit of this standardized system that it gives you opportunities and pathways and more than one chance. And that you could do it from the other side of the planet, whereas I'm sure when you went to school, the idea that you could do this on the other side of the planet may have been far more complicated or just not mm. available. I tried it, but they said I, I had to turn up. <laughs> yeah, to be in class. I had to be there. Couldn't so, phone in from Australia. So the mainstream school obviously is about more than just standardized testing, but this is the big new thing that it brings into it. And like we said, this is infrequent. This is typically a one-off, very high stakes. But the other approach to assessment in the mainstream school would be in-school tests or in-school assessments. And typically these are much more frequent or actually very frequent, but lower stakes. Now these assessments can still often be used towards your marking, but some of these, as we've discussed in recent episodes, might be just more formative assessments like check-ins on how you are doing to provide you feedback, as we talked about in our last episode. But if we are looking at those final end-of-unit summative assessments, what's interesting in the mainstream school is a test is no longer the only way to assess student learning. Now, this is not to say that all traditional schools and all traditional teachers will only rely on tests, but I would say a written test you know, that has some short answer, maybe some fill-in-the-blank, maybe an essay, that sort of thing, you're much more likely to see exclusive to the traditional approach. You will st still see some of that in a mainstream approach, but the actual definition of what an acceptable assessment or test is expands greatly in the mainstream approach. So this is where you move away from just, you know, a pen and paper written test towards things like a project being used as the final assessment. 
This is where things have a lot more, many more moving parts and, you know, demonstrate higher order thinking skills. So, you know, we're getting into the application and analysis and away from just filling in blocks and blanks to show what we know. So projects, demonstrations, student portfolios of their learning. So it might actually be drawing from several things that they've done rather than just one task could involve a role play or, you know, one of the most ambitious ones that I was part of planning a few years back was the idea of a math field trip. So students had, you know, multiple math based real life problems they would have to do. And if I remember correctly, they were in groups of two or three students and each paired up with a parent volunteer. And this was something that, you know, took from 830 in the morning straight to through till 330 in the afternoon. Students had to, you know, use maps, plan a timetable to accomplish like three different tasks. I think, you know, one of them was getting everything at the grocery store for a recipe, bring it back, make the recipe so that they would have stuff ready for a bake sale that was happening at the end of the day. You know, this is real life, at least in terms of stuff we agreed to be doing for the day. But, you know, either at the end of the day, you were able to get all your stuff together for the bake sale and pull it off or not. And throughout there, there was, you know, kind of three mini simulation to real life applications of using this math, using our mapping skills, using estimating time skills, using reading bus schedule skills, using money budgeting skills, using uh, like advertising cost to uh, profit ratio skills in terms of selling this stuff, um, bundling all of these things together, this kind of wild real life application um, of these skills is something that could be used as an assessment at the end of a unit, as opposed to just a, you know, 30 minute written test. Yeah, it's that acknowledgement that, that anything that you can agree upon as a criteria and somehow rank by its quality or how accurate you are or, or something like that. Anything that you can choose as a criterion and somehow define the levels of goodness you can use as an assessment. And what you talked about, a little bit of higher order thinking skills, a lot of um, the old school kind of test measures how well you remember things or, or maybe some level of understanding this idea of this thing called Bloom's taxonomy that says there's higher levels of thinking about things than just remembering them and understanding. We've talked about it a lot, but the next one up or one of the next up is applying that information. So I've, I've got it. I know that two plus two is four. I know how to uh, hit a tennis ball, but now can I apply it? Can I put it into action? Can I solve a problem with that math skill? Can I play a game with that tennis skill? And like you said there, can I go and plan a bake sale with all of these complex parts? But what you did is you taken parts of the curriculum and found ways to assess those parts and then use that creatively in an activity. You certainly could have made that into a test, a written paper test, and asked some of those same questions. But the answers you gave and the opportunities for students to engage in their learning and show more of their learning came about from the creative way you interpreted that. And this is where it does get a little bit more difficult because you get into trying to assess some kind of subjective things. You know, if you're down at the bottom level of Bloom's taxonomy and you're looking at memorizing things, I've given you 10 things to remember and now tomorrow I'm gonna to see if you remember them 
okay, that's a pretty basic test. But now in this mainstream kind of school, we start to say, actually, we might be able to assess kids doing a little bit more with this information, maybe analyzing things and breaking it up into parts. But that's harder to assess. It's harder to know whether someone's applied their learning and analyzed something than it is to see if they've remembered it. But to me, it's pretty obvious that it's the ones of using and analyzing that are more meaningful and are going to be more useful going forward. Of course, we need to know things. You need to remember them to some degree, but if you can use them, that's probably better. So, you know, and, and what we get into is it's actually really hard to decide what's relevant, what's important. If I'm writing a story and I'm only really interested in the grammar and spelling, it's pretty straightforward. It's mechanical. We can, to some degree, I can go through and check it. If I'm more interested in the levels of storytelling, levels of detail, how does the text emotionally grip the reader? We're off into some different types of assessment, but it's the mainstream school says or begins to say, yet it's worth trying to assess some of those things too. And here's how you can do it. We talk about things like a rubric where it has levels of descriptors of quality and so on. Yeah, and this brings up kind of the last piece, which is we talk about the mainstream relationship being that of a coach and the athlete. And the idea is the coach is constantly measuring to find the athlete's zone of proximal development to do the most effective and most efficient thing to help them to continue to grow in order to have as many opportunities open to themselves as possible. And to do this kind of work, like we were just talking about, to do that, you know, the math field trip day well was difficult. And I think we did it twice, one year, and then we did it the following year. And the first year, I, as the teacher, didn't design it very well. It kind of looked good on paper, but then when you actually test ran it. It was like, oh, there are actually some bugs in this here that need to be ironed out. And perhaps a traditional teacher may have looked and goes, you know what? The, my one-page test actually would have been a better assessment of the kids' skills than the, the mess you put together. Just because something sounds interesting doesn't mean it's actually a better assessment. Now, the, by the second year, learned a lot, applied those things. And yes, by the second year, it was a good assessment of whether or not these kids could do this. But if we, you know, this, the big question is, is the test valid? Does it actually measure what it claims to measure? And how well does it measure what we want it to measure? You know, the analogy again, if we are trying to create something like a meter stick, that's fine if I have created a meter stick and say this, you know, measures 100 centimeters and it checks if there's a meter. But if we actually go into the world and start using it, we realize that it's not actually what it measures. In fact, it doesn't even measure centimeters or meters. It measures some other unit of something. It's like, well, this is a problem. Just because you say it does this doesn't mean it actually does. And in fact, if we compare Brendan's and mine and someone else's, maybe realize that that third person's test actually does a better job. It is more valid of assessing what it claims to assess. And this is where mastery or expertise or engineering comes in more for a mainstream teacher, because you need to develop these skills of not only do you need to teach well, you need to assess well. And part of assessing well is creating the most efficient and effective assessments. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that validity, especially when you start to make things that move beyond testing, just memorization or basic mechanical knowledge in math or English or, or so on. Yeah, it becomes like the engineer. How do you make this test so it's valid so that it's challenging, but not too challenging? You know, argue, you know, the idea of the bell curve in terms of making sure you design the test so that the majority of people are going to score somewhere in the middle and then you don't have tails that are too long with a couple of people scoring 100 and then everybody else scoring 30 or whatever. It's like this kind of bell curve idea. And um, that's, that's kind of part of designing it, you know. And then, you know, like we talked about last week, can it, can it give us feedback or information that then we can use to help the kids get better or actually share with the students so they can also improve themselves. So all of these things start to come in a little bit more mainstream. And so there is lots of good things about the mainstream approach to this kind of what we might call um, summative assessment or grading. But what are some of those good things that we like to call babies? Well, I couldn't help myself. I already started to discuss this a bit. The idea of an efficient approach to sorting the achievement of an incredible number of people through something like standardized testing is pretty incredible. The idea that, yeah, you could take thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of students, find a way to be able to rank and sort quote unquote merit that efficiently is pretty incredible. And you know, obviously, I think people know where this is going to go in terms of the flip side, the criticism of that. But one problem that it did solve from the traditional world was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, heck, even like 70, 50 years ago, we had this issue where there were, you know, strong schools and weak schools. We had strong states and weak states, you know, a degree from state A versus a degree from state C were seen as inherently more or less worthy due to the reputation of these areas. And one of the things that standardized testing did help to do was fix disparities in those areas that had lower achievement, lower effective methods, these sorts of things. By actually comparing standardized testing data, we could address you know, which regions, which school boards, which schools, which heads of schools needed training to in, in order to help increase student achievement and bring about the idea that there was some equivalency between, you know, the student who graduated downtown Toronto and the student who graduated in the flying community up north type of a thing. So this is a pretty incredible thing. And to do it so effectively and efficiently is amazing. And as well, just this idea of objective grading. You know, we've, you and I, when we were kind of brainstorming some ideas for this. We're talking about some of the drawbacks of the more traditional approach where, you know, it might be your teacher who takes the entire class's data and knows that their reputation, possibly even job is on the line in terms of how the class is doing. Well, if the class isn't doing well, and you're the only one in charge of that, it's pretty easy to fudge those numbers to present a different situation than what's really going on. So this idea of objective grading, the idea that you might rate the test in your school, but it's actually someone else who's going to assess this is an interesting idea in terms of that mainstream value of transparency 
and accountability. What he does for better or worse is wags the entire system. And this is the thing we know there's going to be an end of high school set of tests that get you into university. So it doesn't matter how easy or hard your test is in grade six or grade eight or grade nine. There's no point in it not eventually segueing into where they need to be at the end of grade 12. So it kind of sets those objective signposts as well. And again, for better or worse, it says this is an endpoint that everybody knows is coming. So you can teach towards that. Alongside that, creating that unified standard, you know, those unified goals that we can get to at certain points in our educational kind of path. We're also in mainstream schools now moving beyond that written test, saying that what we're really interested in is clear criteria and knowing how you've made progress or where you're in that clear criteria. It's not a one one shot test to just say, do you remember what I taught you last week? It's kind of like, okay, we're building year on year in these kind of very clear steps, these clear criteria, and we're going to periodically check and see where you're at. And we can do that in many ways. It doesn't have to be a pencil and paper. As we'll come to soon, often it still is, but there are many, many ways to assess the quality or accuracy or frequency of something that doesn't involve a pencil and paper. Yeah, and then finally, is just this idea of a new set of skills for teachers, teachers transitioning from being the master who just knows to being a teacher who is the coach who's actually able to like engineer assessments for teaching and learning. And just like one small anecdote, I sat down with a traditional leaning teacher a few years back asking uh, how they marked the specific type of writing. So a mediation between two languages and then, you know, being able to take the information from sort of the translation and be able to put it into a new format of a written letter. And I just had them explain to me like, hey, how do you mark this? And I started keeping track of things. And then quickly, I realized like, oh, okay, I can see the limitation of the traditional teacher here, because this teacher is just, I think the in total, they end up telling me 58 things that they mark and assess for. And I was like, Okay, so 58. And do you mark the, you go through all 58 for each student, each piece of student, right? No, no, well, it depends on the student. And some students I'd focus more on this and some students I'd focus more on that. And it's like, okay, that is like a holistic kind of approach, but it's not a uniform, standardized, arguably even fair thing that it, well, if a student's a stronger speller, I'll actually go harder on their spelling and dock them more marks than if it's another student, these sorts of things. And this isn't to slag on them for that part, but what I could see was when I started to organize the things they were talking about and say, oh, well, you know, we could organize these under kind of like the six traits of writing. So these, you know, eight things you described here, those are all kind of like ideas-based things and we could kind of group them into here. You know, these five or six things, these were sort of more about like word choice. So we could kind of group them together. You know, these things, these were, you know, different forms of grammar, punctuation, spelling, these sort of things, we could group those. And in fact, you know, to their credit, when I did this grouping, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And it was like, I could see in that moment that I had that engineering set of skills to kind of take everything, synthesize and bring it down. Whereas for them, it was still just kind of like wide open terrain of like, well, I need to make sure I hit all of these things. But they couldn't engineer the transparent assessment that would show how they 
would approach those things. I mean, and there's a strength if you're a genuine master of writing, then them honing in on a couple of things that you definitely need to work on has a lot of benefits. But the problem is that there's a massive range of teacher skills as well. And what this does is mediates that. It says, let's have some objectivity. And there may be some criticism there, and we can get to that. But what he does is he says, now these are the things that's important here, and we're going to get as close as possible. So vocabulary is important for everyone, but then so is the level of description. And then maybe the overall kind of themes of the text, they're important too. But they're not important just for the kid that finds it easier or harder. They're important for everyone, and that gives us an overview of them that we can then uh, measure against other people. This gives us objective criteria measurements that we can say, okay, student A and student B, student C, we know uh, across all of these criteria where they're at. Whereas if I'm choosing or focusing on things, I don't have that overview. So you do gain from that kind of slightly more um, restrictive to some people, that slightly more restrictive way of marking, but it's about focusing on the stuff that's really important. And as I said earlier, that's one of the hardest things. We've sat down with met, you know, many a time with the rubric and trying to work out exactly what it is we're trying to measure of the hundred things we could measure. What are the five that we really care about? And then how do you measure that really well? So those are the babies. Those are the good things that this mainstream approach has brought to the world of assessment. What about the bathwater or things that perhaps um, new problems that it creates, Brennan? So one of the system systemic problems we've talked about a bunch of times is that once you ratchet it up to high stakes and we're, you know, people's jobs, schools kind of like the whole structure of how schools are organized and how much funding they get and Students' life path in terms of work and, and uh, study are all hinged on these few tests. You're just setting up a system that is just prone for people to want to cheat. and Or gamify. On one end, gamify is a yes. nice is a nice way to say yes. You can gamify it. You can, you can, we'll get into the gamification because there's, there's some good ways to kind of motivate people through games and, and gamification. But in terms of this high stakes standardized test, it's like, no matter where you, how you engineer that system, there's always going to be a way for someone to find a way around it because the motivation for some people to get around that is very, very high. Now you could say hiring private tutors is a way to get around that. You could say that a teacher uh, getting the test paper a day before and then somehow getting some information to their students is a way to cheat that test. And that's a, a common way that, that you see reported in the news often. Teachers taking papers afterwards and changing them so that kids get higher scores, especially the kind of bubble mark ones. And, you know, teachers don't go into the teaching profession to, to be doing that kind of thing on the whole. And so there's people who find themselves in that position where, yeah, maybe if I walk over to this kid and just cough <laughs> when answering a question or casually point to a paper, a question on a paper or 
casually drop something into the conversation or whatever. It's like, I've read and seen so many of these over the years that once you raise the incentive to that level, the system's valid as long as you don't look too closely. And then, of course, you get into whether the tests are really measuring what's important. And we had the talk with David Labrie a while back now, and he was like, you know, a lot of these tests, they're, they're, I'm learning this stuff to answer these questions on this paper so I can get into this school. None of it's really uh, particularly valid in terms of pushing my learning forward or measuring where I'm at with any meaning. And so you'd have criticism from both the traditional and the progressive side on that, that it's not valid. And also it's just raising people up, uh, incentivizing cheating. So um, that's not good. That's a bad thing, Rob. Yeah, and one of the gamification pieces there that I know I had heard a lot about when I was in Ontario 10 or more so years ago now was our kind of standardized testing would happen in grades three, six, and nine at that time. And typically, I'm not saying this was the case in my schools, I'm not incriminating anyone that I worked with, but I know this was rampant in some schools. And this was often, you know, newspaper articles on this and, you know, big TV uh, deep dives into this idea that, well, it'd be up to the grade two and the grade five teachers to start diagnosing with kids or start suggesting to parents that their kids need testing. Because if a child did have a diagnosis of something like ADHD or some anywhere on the spectrum of dyslexia or anything like that, special accommodations would be made for the student for the testing. And now this isn't high stakes testing that's going to inform this child's you know, career path necessarily down the road. But if you've got that written into your student file now, that might be something you could keep using into the future that when those high stake tests come around, it will be kind of grandfathered in that you might have that down the road. But not only that, if it can be diagnosed in grade two, we can ensure that that support is there when your kid writes the test in grade three, which really works in the school's favor. You know, we're not the kind of cutthroat UK thing of like your job or the principal's job relies on this. But Certainly, there's still some wiggle room of if you're a teacher getting high scores, if you're a school getting high scores, there are some benefits to that for sure. Now, you could say like, well, is this really that big of a deal? Well, over diagnosing students with these issues, not only has impacts on the kid themselves, all of a sudden hearing, oh, I have this thing. I didn't really know that I wasn't so obvious to me. But now there's the stigma, there's everything that might be associated with this, where it's borderline the case or not. And then second of all, if you're a grade three teacher in a lot of schools, all of a sudden, just magically, you've inherited a class of 24 students and 20 of them have IEPs. And the actual workload that is then demanded on the teacher just goes sky high in order to legally meet the requirements of these IEPs, which in the best case scenario are helping serve the students in some ways. And in other cases, they are perhaps unnecessary and only causing more difficulty in service of this gamification of some extra help on these standardized tests that are coming down the way. Yeah. And it's, it's the introduction of things like that IEPs, the individual 
education plans that tie into things like differentiation and student support in in progressing from where they're at that are things that the mainstream schools brought to the table but then the flip side of that like we say is that um it can it can lead to some decisions that aren't really made for the good of the i guess let me say it this way there, there are decisions that are made more to ensure that someone gets a, a better score on a test than actually gets support they need not always again these are rare most diagnoses are genuine and they're backed up but um, this kind of promotes this kind of you know thinking in some areas and the other area that is often criticized is that once you know what's on the test everything becomes about the test this is something that struck me you know not long ago i got into mainstream teaching in in britain and it wasn't long before it's like the all i've got this curriculum document that's hundreds of pages long and it's got all these great things and i've got all these ideas and i'm hearing professional development about fantastic projects and stuff but none of it matters because none of it's on the test the only thing that matters is on this test and I'll actually be criticized for doing some of those other projects, which I was at times criticized for doing some more creative, shall we say, projects, because it felt that maybe there wasn't as much focus on making sure that they were ready for that test. And that's not the purpose of what mainstream, if you dig into mainstream's philosophy in its healthiest sense, it's about supporting people and equality so it's about support about transparency and about moving you on from where you're at none of that holds in the in a in a system that is now 100 percent geared towards getting a better score on the test including dropping arts dropping sports and anything that's done um that takes too much time away from that focus is actually hurting the students and hurting the school and there's also truth in the fact that it's hurting them because the system needs them to get those scores to get to get into the next college or the university so it's like it's not just someone saying the system's geared to forcing you to do that um because that's the best way to air quotes help the student so we've talked about the gamification that can go into the leading up to the writing of the test and talked about the preparation for the test and this idea that you know in some situations in the worst cases in mainstream everything becomes about teaching to the test this is showing a lot of trust that this test is a valid measure and that not only that that the test is valid but the the results you will get from the test are valid and you know i know from direct experience with someone that I worked with, and I've heard this story echoed many times, is the complication of this peer moderated marking for standardized tests, because time is always against you. So you might have a pool of 10 educators who've gathered to peer moderate the work from across a district or across a province or a state or whatever. And, you know, the first handful you're sifting through and going into great detailed discussions about yes, we're all in agreement that yes, this would score whatever a B plus in our system and it breaks down this and we've got all the transparency and all that. But there are more than enough things, more than enough stories about like, okay, yeah, it started off on that detailed level. And then by the end, we're pretty much taking about two, three seconds per paper and just chucking them into piles in terms of 
layering and ranking who scored what and this sort of thing, even if the tests themselves are valid and even if the preparation is done in good faith, at the end of the day, we run into this efficiency effectiveness of how do you mark a stack of a million papers? Well, unfortunately, efficiency is likely to win out over effectiveness here. And a lot of decisions still end up being made in haste and rushed. I guess maybe the last thing is that this notion of doing assessments that aren't really tests, a traditional teacher might not really be on board with that idea in the sense that maybe they question whether it actually, the time taken, the resources needed, does it actually is it actually as good as a paper test? And like you said, Rob, maybe sometimes it isn't, but maybe many times it is in terms of um, assessing a wider range of things, student motivation, student choice, which becomes more and more important as you move towards progressive education. Um, a traditional teacher might say, yeah, it's not worth the extra time and effort. I could do a test and I could get what I need from, from this. And then you flip that into the progressive educator and it's the same complaint that comes up in many of these that the kids aren't really choosing this year, but you're still forcing them into a fairly narrow, confined way to assess what they learn. You know, maybe you give them a bit of choice. Maybe you give them a bit of like saying what the criteria might look like to some degree as you get towards like an IB school. We try and implement a little bit more of discussion with the kids about criteria, but until you start moving really and this is one of the things we're, that we're trying to do a little bit more, move more and more to the, to the kids having more input in that criteria, more, spending more time building together. And you are moving more towards that progressive end. But still, you need to go further and further until the kind of, if you go way into the progressive end where, there, where the teachers would say, the kids need to have way, way more say over everything. What are you assessing? Why are you assessing it? If it doesn't have meaning at its core, then you are wasting your time. The assessment has to exist purely to tell you what you're doing well and what you can do next. And in specific areas that really resonate and mean something to the person doing it and to their kind of community. And so they might say, you know, you're taking some baby steps in the right direction, mainstream school. And if you can get rid of all that toxic side of your test, and if you can really expand your criteria and turn it over to the kids now, maybe we can talk to you a little bit more. But where you're currently at, it's a pretty much a worst case scenario in the eyes of the progressive educator. So assessing, grading, and scoring in the mainstream school. That was a deep dive into the standardization, the expanding of considering what's assessment and the validity of those assessments. Thanks, Brennan. Thank you, Rob. So next time, I'm going to dig into something a little bit lighter, maybe a little bit more fun, this idea of student roles and responsibilities within the class and what we might call it class jobs and other things that, uh, that students are asked to do or that kind of more ethos-based, that little bit more uh, community-based kind of idea. So we'll have a look at that in a couple of weeks' time and see how the mainstream school deals with that. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, Rob. And now, time for the Reinventing Education. Three types of school in a nutshell.
If you're new to us, hopefully this is a helpful guide to navigate some of the terminology we use on our podcast. All right, so every school and every educator is in a tug of war, and we're pulled in three different directions. Each of the three directions has its own definitions about what makes for a good education. But this tug of war is difficult to notice because the three directions to education each use the same vocabulary, but each of the three directions has their own definitions for what that vocabulary means. So let's characterize these three approaches with the following names, traditional, mainstream, and progressive. And let's connect each to its relationship between a student and teacher. So traditional uses a master and apprentice model. Mainstream uses coach and athlete model. And progressive uses a counselor and counseled model. Now, these three approaches to education would agree on the surface that education has the same three aims. Those three aims of education are for occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. However, each of the three approaches to school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, has completely different ideas about what occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development requires. So how does each of the three approaches to education meet the three aims of school? Well, with traditional master and apprentice, we see that the teacher is an expert and knows the one best way for students to achieve academic success and meet the three aims. In the mainstream, the Olympic coach and athlete model, the teacher works to assess and create each student's individual optimal way balancing the effectiveness and efficiency to achieve maximum academic success in relationship to the curriculum to meet those three aims. And finally, the progressive, the counselor and counseled. The teacher and student negotiate the student's path to achieve their goals for academic success to meet the three aims. Each teacher will have a preference towards one approach, while the school itself may have an overall consensus, and this is where you'll find the tug of war. These three approaches not only define how an education is conducted in the classroom, but it also informs three different directions in terms of a school's organization, its culture, and its practices. The traditional master and apprentice requires a clear pyramid of authority, prioritizing security along with duty and tradition, putting trust in those in authority to uphold their duty for the integrity of the system. The mainstream coach and athlete uses a flowchart with a mobility for all, which serves as a flexible meritocracy of authority prioritizing achievement along with measurable progress and transparency towards meeting specific goals, putting the results of those in authority as important for the integrity of the system. And finally, progressive counselor and counseled uses horizontal leadership like a circle prioritizing inclusion along with individuals' needs for meaning and empowerment putting the personal and group significance as important for the integrity of the system. We often see tugs of war between how to organize the overall structure, either reinforcing the pyramid, a flowchart, or a circle. Each of these three types of school can be done well, somewhat effectively, or poorly, and each can suit a specific context better than the rest. Here on Reinventing Education, we believe it's better for a school to choose the type of school that best suits its students, staff, and community context, and do it to be high-functioning. Otherwise, the ongoing tug-of-war 
between the three approaches comes at the expense of time, resources, passion, and relationships, while not even ensuring that any of the three approaches is done well. Here on Reinventing Education, we are exploring the idea of the next type of school, a post-progressive approach to education that prioritizes the integration of these three previous types of school. Why? Well, an integration approach would seek a flexible and adaptive balance of the three previous approaches as an adaptive approach to inquire into and provide what is deemed a best fit for students, community, and the system in a given context to best meet those three educational aims of occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and self-development as defined by those involved. The integration value attempts to maximize the gifts when appropriate of each approach to education while discerning how to minimize unnecessary drawbacks that are required when in wholly investing in doing one approach. In order to integrate the gifts of the three previous types of school, we need to know what we have to work with. So on our podcast, we're digging deep into these three types of school and trying to tease apart the babies and the bathwaters of each one.